Welcome to Couch Time. I am your host, Susie, a licensed marriage and family therapist, joined by my co-host, Janet, licensed clinical social worker. Thank you for joining our show where we dive into topics like mental health and relationship wellness, along with sharing our experiences and lessons learned on our road to licensure and building a private practice. You can connect with us at roadtowellness.co and susiehologian.com, where you can also find show notes for this episode. Are you in a long distance relationship? Is it difficult to find people who just get it? We know for us, it was challenging to feel understood and supported. That's why we created a collection of worksheets and guides for how to navigate long distance. You'll find information like how to communicate with your partner, how to keep things spicy, and how to discuss your values and closing the distance. This is totally for you. Head over to www.suzyhalajian.com shop to pick up your own copy and learn the skills to empower your relationship. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Couch Time Podcast. I am Janet Byramian, and I'm joined by my co-host. Hi, everyone. I'm Susie. And we have a wonderful guest today, a fellow clinician who's going to be talking about his experiences and the field and all things mental health. Thank you so much for joining us, Andrew. Hi, thank you for having me. How do you pronounce your last name, by the way? Yeah, it's a hard one. It's Katsinas. Thank you so much. I have a hard, I think all three of us actually have a difficult last name. So I always want to make sure. So to kind of jump right in, Andrew, you know, we love your experiences, you know, in the field. And we're going to be talking to you a lot about everything that, you know, you've gone through in terms of different certifications and your background. But we always like to start with all the therapists that we talk to of just what has your journey been like to get here? You know, what introduced you to the field? What made you want to get into the field of mental health? I'm so curious. I think I've been able to make that answer shorter as I've gotten older and more experienced in the field. When I was in high school and uh, college, I was uh, quite religious and some things have changed since then. I did a lot of youth ministry in a, a Catholic church and I noticed that I really kind of gravitated towards the teens that were struggling with something a little bit more than just like a spiritual struggle. It was like their parents were separating, uh, they were coming out as gay, lesbian, or trans, or they were suicidal. And I was completely untrained and had very poor boundaries at the time, staying up until 3 a.m. worried for someone. So it was nice to get some of that out of the way. But I, I kind of realized well into my first career, which was in film, that I really miss working with people directly. And perhaps could make a living out of it and feel more fulfilled. So that's my short answer. <laughs> Amazing. Love it. And I think actually, uh, you know, a lot of creatives, you know, join the field of mental health. You mentioned you, you were in film. What was that process like for you? It's definitely something I'm still very passionate about. I think I can drive my partner pretty crazy by making sure we watch all of the Academy Award when nominated films before they come out. Uh, whereas I think he just wants to watch something silly. Working in entertainment was, it was just so not what I was like trained for in school. Like we were in very much like a close cohort, similarly, similar to what Susie and I, who were in the same Pepperdine cohort experience. And it was just a lot of hands-on set time. And that's just not how the entertainment industry works. It's there's a lot of a hierarchy and a ladder that one has to climb and I was stuck editing and I did not want to be an editor. I wanted to write and direct and I very much missed talking with people. I think for me, it was a hard way of learning that was perhaps more of a hobby rather than a lifestyle or a career. Andrew, do you feel like there's a similar hierarchy that stands in the way of therapists in our field? That's a good question. I'm not sure. I feel like the, that answer for 
therapy is like all these things aren't necessarily our fault. <laughs> There's just so many things in place, like the supervision process and hours and even like taking an exam for licensure. There's all these, I think, somewhat archaic systems mm-hmm. don't necessarily test whether someone will be a good or ethical therapist. I think one thing that perhaps the three of us may be able to speak to is pay as an associate if you were even fortunate to get paid in those hours as you were building towards licensure. For anyone listening, I I had a very low paying job in treatment for about two years when I was hustling to finish my hours. You can certainly feel like you're the bottom rung on a ladder. That's why I'll say that (laughs) with with the caseload and the number of hours worked at times. Absolutely. But Janet and I have recently talked about this. And, you know, for those who who may not know, my whole associateship, I was not paid. And, you know, at the time I I kind of weighed the cost and benefit of it. And I was getting an insane amount of hours, obviously being overworked at the time. But, you know, it was kind of a trade-off for me that at the time I accepted, but it is so unacceptable that at master's levels, at the work that we're doing, there is this expectation that we're supposed to just work for free or work for, you know, pennies to the dollar. I highly agree with that. And I could do a whole episode again on (laughs) challenges with pay in the field, but kind of shifting gears, Andrew, you talked a little bit about your background. So you mentioned that one of your big passions is working with the LGBTQ populations. You mentioned that you're also in as a sex therapist. Can you tell us more just a little bit about, you know, the, those different specializations and, and your passions behind them? Yeah, I kind of fell into sex therapy by accident. It was a really, it was a great hoot to arrive at my 10 year high school reunion and I have my name badge say sex therapist. I think I really surprised some classmates I hadn't seen in a while. Actually, we had a very small practicum class at Pepperdine and one of, I don't think I was with Susie in this semester, but Susie and I often were in the same class for that. She brought in a guest lecturer who was actually my sex therapy supervisor to this day. And she gave like a really brief presentation on what sex therapy is to her. And it was very spiritually based of course, like absent of religion, but of course those, I think, overlap pretty frequently. But she was talking about how therapists, if they're not trained in sex therapy, may forget one of the the four dimensions of therapy. So under her training and my training, that's, and I'll put these more in (laughs) uh, general speak, it's more, I think that the non-sex therapist is going to be focusing on mental issues, on emotional issues. And sometimes if they're somatically trained to focus on the physical And sex therapy doesn't ignore the fourth, supposedly, if if you buy into the theory, which is the spiritual connection. And it's, of course, possible to have that if you're not trained. I think every therapeutic relationship has a spiritual connection. It's hard to come into this space if you don't feel safe with your therapist and have some intimacy there. But it's really in nurturing and acknowledging and sex exists in spirituality. It's how we connect with people. It's probably the most intimate we can get with someone, whether they're our partner of a lifetime or someone that we met and we'll never see again. I love that. I I love, I haven't actually thought about sex therapy from a spiritual lens. And I, I actually, I'm not formally an ASEC therapist. One of my former supervisors, she's ASEC certified and same thing, you know, sort of feeling like I didn't wake up one day and decide I wanted to do sex therapy, but it was sort of something similarly, like I fell into that it happened by accident. And I just wonder in your experience with clients, because I do, at least in my work with clients, ask a lot of those questions about, you know, their sexual relationships and stuff like that. And at least the feedback that I hear, I don't know what feedback you hear, is clients actually thank me for asking those questions because a lot of their 
former therapists either forget or, or don't necessarily think to ask questions about, like you said, you know, spirituality or about, you know, their sexual relationship. What's your yeah. experience with that? I, I, I've definitely been thanked for things that seem uncomfortable to ask. My supervisor has been really excellent in some of the handholding and some of the, I feel like in the beginning of our relationship, it was like every other week I'm coming in with a like new imposter syndrome and I can't ask this question, you know, I don't have a vulva, right? And she would just say, you don't need a vulva to be able to be a therapist. <laughs> right. So it's kind of, kind of lovely in that way. But I think that sex is, especially in our culture, and this is why I love Esther Pearl so much because she comes from a much different, more sex positive culture, but there's, there's such a shame inherent to just bringing up sex, even with a new stranger, even if that person is your therapist, there's, there's such a taboo around sexuality in the United States. And when, of course, I think, I think when a client's coming to you for sex therapy, they're, they're expecting that they're going to have to talk about that at some point. But I, I found that even just mentioning that I am a sex therapist and I'm almost done with my certification will be like, oh, actually, you know what? I'm having a hard time with my partner when it comes to sex, actually, at this phase in our relationship. And I want to talk mm -hmm. about that. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a kind of funny, uh, accidental, I'm not, I don't necessarily believe that clients pick me by accident, but <laughs> uh, I feel like it may lessen some of the discomfort for them to be like, oh, maybe a year in, two years into our relationship. Hey, you know what? I'm actually noticing that I may have uh, sexual dysfunction in this area. And I really want to mm -hmm. talk about that. I guess this, this might be a question for both of you. We have a lot of listeners who are pre-licensed and who are just starting their journey. And I think being able to talk about sex and therapy is important for any therapist, whether they're ASEC certified or not. Would either of you have suggestions to new therapists on how to grow comfortable with having those conversations with their clients? What I would say is I think we need to do our own work around that, you know, like if there is some sort of discomfort, sort of exploring that, exploring, you know, why is there discomfort, exploring our own messages, our own understanding around sex, that's at least what comes up for me. I remember, you know, when I started working with that particular supervisor as an associate, I was doing such intensive, my own trauma therapy at that time, because I just knew like, I can't really support others unless I do my own stuff. So that's definitely the feedback that I would give to a lot of associates. I feel like with sex in particular, it's one thing that I really enjoy about it is it feels like we get to the holistic heart of someone really quickly. And tragically, that can be the result of sexual trauma, right? I, I really need to come in and talk to you, Andrew, because I can't have sex with my partner. I'm too, I'm too triggered. I'm too activated by something that happened to me. Heard that a lot. So sometimes it's not always healing right off the bat, but it's something that needs to be addressed in that way. And absolutely, Janet, it's if, if, if that work hasn't been done internally, it's like you're going to have something dropped on you as a therapist that could be really distressing. I remember about a year ago, year and a half ago, I had um, on one day of the week, every single one of my clients had been sexually assaulted or raped. That was, that was tough sometimes if I wasn't well rested, if I wasn't <laughs> stretching sometimes between sessions, it was, it could be, it could be really heavy work. Absolutely. And, and curious, Andrew, you, you kind of mentioned that you fell into that aspect of the field by accident, since we do have a lot of listeners that are pre-licensed, some are even still in grad school, kind of exploring what they want to do. Do you have feedback for those clinicians that maybe are not sure if they want to specialize in something or are not sure, you know, what they want their focus to be? Do you have feedback for those associates that maybe are questioning things at this point? That's a great question. 
one thing that I wish I had done was I think I think more of how I started that relationship with my current ASEC supervisor, which was reaching out after someone came to present to our class and be like, hey, that was really cool. I want to talk to you more. I think things worked out as they do. And that's that's sort of the spirituality that I practice. I think that that was absolutely supposed to happen. But I do remember other guests coming into Susie and I's classes and being like, oh, that was a really cool presentation. Maybe I'm interested in that theory and not really doing so. Not out of, I think, being lazy, but just realizing that maybe we had too much on our plates. But there really is a great opportunity in that pre-licensed arena to say, hey, I'm new to this. <laughs> I, I want to learn more. You, I'd like to have a conversation with you. And I found that therapists are pretty pretty open to that and helping each other out. We're pretty, we're pretty good at that, maybe because we all shared the trauma of unpaid hours. <laughs> <But>. <laughs> I can only imagine. It, it's weird. I think like, and Andrew, it could be because we were so overwhelmed with things, but it wasn't until well into being in private practice and being an associate that I realized, oh, all those comments of networking is, is important and connectivity between therapists are important. Like, I don't think I ever fully understood what that meant until I was on my own and felt like I was starting at, you know, square one and didn't know anything. I, it, it was like, I forgot what therapy even was without that containment of having people constantly around you and, and people that you can refer to. So, yeah, I think if one of the biggest takeaways that new students or, you know, therapists new into seeing clients should really be on the lookout for is reach out when you find those interesting topics or people who are in specialties that you might even be interested in. And those are just invaluable. Like they are priceless connections you can have. Yeah. Like that in self-care, right? How many times <laughs> were we told? Yeah. Yeah. And we, I think always need to remember to practice what we preach. We are constantly reminding our clients and how often do we really take that to ourselves? I wanted to ask too, Andrew, Susie, you also gave me this background about Andrew, but Andrew, it sounds like you've sort of shifted gears a lot, you know, in your private practice. I know that we've all had to do that on some level, you know, with the year that we've all had in the pandemic. So I'm just curious also for you, like, what was that process like, you know, going from, I'm assuming you were in person going to telehealth, doing telehealth, you know, for this year and some months that we've all been doing, what has it been like for you switching gears, you know, through these ever-changing times? There certainly has been a lot of things that are up in the air in that way. I actually started my private practice in the pandemic, which is pretty strange. <laughs> uh, so I've never had clients come to my company in person. So that's pretty, that's pretty unique. I never expected that to be uh, the way that that would, that that dream would unfold. <laughs> but I think there maybe, and I'm not sure how you practice in it, but private practice has been very illuminating in a lot of ways. I think to echo what Susie was saying about not really understanding the importance of networking until you're on your own, especially in a year like this, where uh, this is the way that therapists communicate, at least the ones that are practicing pandemic sensitive practice. Right, that we're meeting over Zoom and we're meeting over FaceTime. And that's difficult. That's hard to meet people in a new city. I actually temporarily relocated to San Diego in October of last year because I was just suffocating in Los Angeles in my little apartment. <laughs> and that was that was interesting. Uh, it, it was it was interesting to tell clients that this move may be permanent. It's looking like it's not. But, and to see how open they would be to 
telehealth, considering that that was the only option given lockdown. I think one of the one of the unique things about starting higher practice in this time is that there's really no one else to look to for advice or for leadership. So it was it was a really humbling and interesting, I would say, like sense of agency that I was tested with right off the bat. That oh maybe I get to decide if this client is appropriate to work in a distanced relationship with. Of course, I think we're all working with the distance with telehealth, but mm-hmm. maybe maybe this client would not be okay working from a different city. Maybe I do need to be in the same city. Maybe this is okay. So, again, that's just something that I don't think we were all trained for. <laughs> yeah. No. And Andrew, I feel like this was almost foreshadowing for us. You know, Pepperdine throws their students into practicum within the first year, which is earlier than most schools. And we've always described it as like a trial by fire experience. And, you know, like you, I started my private practice, my own private practice in during the pandemic as well. And it felt very similar. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in ways I used to say, I would never feel comfortable doing telehealth, but in certain ways, it's made it so much easier to just start rather than holding myself back. And I wonder if like, in some ways it was like that for you too. Yeah. I think not having to like find the perfect office, not finding the perfect furniture and of course having almost no furniture. Not having to pay (laughs) for an office. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, That'll be really, that'll be a weird transition. Maybe, maybe you can relate as well when it is time to to have an office. uh, Yeah. I think we're used to only paying one type of rent right now. (laughs) Definitely. That's a good way of putting it. It, it. it definitely made it easier to jump. I, I don't, I think I may have had to delay or take some time if not for, so it's, this has been a pretty horrible 14 months. <laughs> I think there has been, I think in terms of business and being able to take risks and leap in that way has been quite wonderful. It's very weird to say that out loud. Yeah, I hear that. Andrew, I kind of want to shift gears a little bit and put some focus on you know, some of the other specialties that you work with. So I know you are very passionate about providing representation in the LGBTQ communities. I'm wondering in your experience, what type of representation is currently lacking in the field of mental health? And how do you think the the therapist community can really help fill those gaps and provide, you know, more help and assistance in what's needed? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I think just by systems of oppression, people that could really benefit as being representatives for certain communities, specifically the trans community, right? Perhaps uh, Black women, Black trans women, right? There, there are so many barriers and hurdles for these people in the world that if one of them, let's say, wanted to become a therapist, right? There's there's going to have to be a lot of help and assistance given. It's a very expensive field to receive an education in, which is pretty hilarious considering our goals aren't to have Maseratis, unless that's your goals, of course, <laughs> and live by the ocean. I think it's really difficult with sort of the expected pay that our field has. And I think one of the real tragedies is that people really want to work with people like them, people that identify as trans can really benefit from a trans therapist. And while there are some, I think that trans people in particular, black women in particular, have a lot of barriers towards reaching that level of education. And that's that's not necessarily our system's fault, but I think that the biggest barrier for psychotherapy is making psychotherapy accessible to people that really need help, that really need therapy in some cases. 
I love that perspective. I love the perspective of, um, you know, you're talking about representation. I'm even thinking about, you know, Susie and I, we, we both share that we're both culturally Armenian and just having the representation of just different cultures, you know, in the field is, is absolutely important. And, you know, the stigma of mental health, I guess, in, in cultures that I think many of us, you know, have to sort of push back against and educate and, you know, explore that, that that's just what came up for me as you were talking about it. Yeah. And I'm really hearing, you know, the cost of becoming a therapist. And I think sometimes institutions and and the bigger system really forgets that, you know, we, like you said, Andrew, we are a helping field and to create that blockade and that obstacle, even before someone has the capability to become a therapist, to be able to represent their culture, to be able to represent, you know, their people is, is such, it feels so backwards for the field of, of therapists and psychotherapy and mental health. And, and to have an obstacle before someone is even able to start to provide representation for themselves seems just so backward. Yeah, I, I got I got pretty upset following the murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd that there was there was a lot of resources that were shared in terms of where black people can go for therapy. And what I thought was really insulting was that this therapy was supposed to be given for free from black providers. Mm-hmm. And I, I well, of, well, of course, I understand why a Black person struggling with racial issues in 2020, especially, would like to go to a Black provider. There Shouldn't these therapists be getting paid for the work that's going to be very distressing? That was a very distressing time, I think, for most people in this country. And I, I think that that's, it's just, that's, we want to talk about inequity. That's really unfair that someone may have to give their time for free when they're likely paying for school the same way we are, which is loans that are unpaid, at least if you're me. <laughs> but... Me too. <laughs> feels like it just adds to that cycle and, you know, only feeds into the, to making the issue bigger than, than where it starts. So exploring kind of similarly what we just talked about, Andrew, we, we like to ask every therapist that we have on the podcast, some of these questions, again, similar about the field, about the, your career. We talked about you know, having representation in the field, wondering for you, what have you felt like has been your biggest obstacle in your career as a therapist so far? I think that I have been fairly privileged in the transition. And again, I think that I'm, I'm becoming a little more hippie uh, when it comes to spirituality and things lining up. I think I'm, I think I left the career of film at the right time and found the right supervisor in practicum who actually got me my first job in substance use treatment right away, which was paid and then work towards licensure and starting my own private practice. So I think I haven't had a ton of obstacles. I, I do want to take a moment to identify a real privilege for men in the field. I believe at least when we were in school, Susie, it was like an 80% female or female identified mm-hmm. lead of therapists being women or female people. Yep. And I think for men, men are going to look and for the most part, want to work with a man. I, I think 80% of my caseload are men or non-binary people. I don't have a ton of cisgendered heterosexual females coming to me for therapy. And I do have some, especially if they're coming in for sex-related issues. But I think just that alone, right, men are going to probably seek therapy from me, whereas they may not from a female therapist. So I haven't had a ton of 
problems getting clients right off the bat. I don't think I was really doing anything. <laughs> I think it was more just like my face was on a profile and I was contacted. And I think a lot of that comes from being white as well, that I think people will read my degree and see what I look like and assume that I know what I'm talking about. And that's not fair to a lot of other practitioners. And do you feel like you can name a misconception about therapy that maybe you wish the general public would understand? One that I hear a lot, or more from, I think, people in my life that I'm not sure if you two can, ex- can account for this at all, but sometimes friends will think that you're doing therapy with them when you're talking to them. And if you, if you suggest that therapy could be helpful, it's almost like they have to be schizophrenic to seek out treatment. And I, I found that really interesting because my clients obviously are, are coming to me for help, and I'm sure they're coming to you for help in some way, in some arena of their lives as well. But I, I think that the majority of my clients, especially since I've been shifting focus primarily into sex therapy are people that are really just trying to have better fulfillment or enjoyment. And sometimes that's sex related, but it really isn't this crisis. I haven't actually had a clinical crisis in about over a year, which I'm definitely lucky for, (laughs) but these, these are not people that are necessarily completely overwhelmed. And I think that there's such a stigma that therapy means someone's like at their breaking point. And that's not, that's just not reflective at all in what I see in my caseload every week. You know, I really appreciate that you say that because Janet and I's favorite themes are talking about misconceptions and we bounce a lot of them around. And I don't think anyone has ever mentioned that yet. And I completely hear you because the second you said it, I pictured every single one of my friends standing in front of me. And when I've gotten to the point of telling them, you know, like, I think this would be a great time to seek out a therapist. And there is, there's always this idea that, you know, there's nothing huge or crazy going on in my life. Like there's no diagnostic criteria for me to admit myself into therapy for. And that is a very antiquated idea of what therapy is. And for my own experience in therapy, the times where I've enjoyed my therapy the most is when I just simply have containment and a place to talk about my internal thoughts with my therapist. So I love that. And I think it's such a great and humbling you know, reminder that there doesn't need to be a giant crisis to want to seek therapy, to seek growth and to seek like self-fulfillment, like you said. I love that. And I have to ask this of you, Andrew, as well, because I, I feel like there's also a lot of misconceptions about sex therapy. I know when I introduce that to non-therapists, I, I feel like I get a lot of questions that maybe are unrelated or questions where people ask, like, what is that? Mm-hmm. So do you feel like you have misconceptions about sex therapy that you tend to explain or educate to non-clinicians? I think one of the earlier realizations I had in that was that I thought that sex therapy was always going to be like someone talking about a sex organ or talking about a trauma. And it's, it it sometimes feels like it's the loud entrance to therapy. I want to talk about this, this happened, but I think that with what I love about some of the training that I've received is that, especially with sex therapy, everything begins with consent. And that's really no different than general psychotherapy. We release, and if we're able to, right, obtain signed consent for treatment. But I think that sex therapy makes it really obvious that consent has to be given all the time, that I can come in and want to talk about a, a really horrific sexual trauma, for example. 
but maybe in session, as I'm talking about this, I'm getting really activated. I'm exhibiting some types of distress and I'm actually done talking about it. And I'd like to revoke my consent. I, I feel like that's actually something that I see the most is that perhaps someone's coming in and they want to talk about this, but they may not be ready to. Maybe I haven't earned the privilege to hear this story yet. This is a very sensitive story. I hope that answers that question. It does. It's almost like empowering people, empowering clients to get to their point of comfort, get to their point of safety, you know, with their therapist to talk about certain things. I feel like I also like to explain that sex therapy is also not even necessarily something where you talk about it being a dysfunction. I think a lot of people ask me, so does that mean that you teach people to have sex? Like I constantly have to clarify that. I often also tell people like it's a wonderful opportunity for people to just explore their bodies, to explore their sexual livelihood and what is, you know, desirable for them or not. It's not necessarily they're coming in because something negative or bad happened. It's just, you know, a place for them to explore that level of self-empowerment within themselves. It's distressing sometimes, but it's the safe exploration of something that I've never actually had the chance to look at. But maybe now the mirror is there, right? And this person may not go further than adapting any part of their sexual identity, but it's just, I want to talk about this. Thank you. Thank you for clarifying that. Last question that we like to ask every therapist, you know, there's this concept of modern therapy therapists are now on Instagram and therapists are doing so many more things just outside of meeting with clients one-on-one. So we like to ask every clinician that comes on, how do you keep it real as a modern therapist? I think I could use some help in keeping it modern. I don't have (laughs) done nothing with sometimes I like repost things that I think are cool in terms of like what other therapists are sharing, but haven't done any posts on it yet. I really gravitated to like psychodynamic theory in the beginning of our Pepperdine training. And it's really difficult, I think, to use because it's it's very heady, I think, at times and difficult to explain some of like the way that the theory works. So I think for me, my my modern approach is actually practicing in a very different way than perhaps I may theorize. So for me, that that modern and keeping it real piece is really learning how to disclose in a really healthy and appropriate way for the relationship. I was very rigid in the beginning of seeing clients and trying to be that blank slate. And I think sometimes that didn't always work the way I wanted it to. I like to really use humor. And if I'm being, for lack of a better word, boring, (laughs) I'm not really going to be my best self in the room for a client. It's great that you say that because knowing you personally, you know, I can't imagine you're clients not getting a slice of who you are, because I think you're, there's so much to it and there's so much that they could take from that and to learn from that. So I think that's a perfect example of how to be a modern therapist. And of course, like we, we all try to have these healthy boundaries with our clients, but in a modern, more open idea and system of therapy, there is a little bit more disclosure and there is a little bit of bringing yourself into the room and reminding you know, both yourself, but both your client that you're just two humans having a conversation with each other. You know, it doesn't have to be this old idea of someone sitting backwards in a chair and like talking to you through your deepest, darkest secrets. So I think that's a beautiful way to keep it modern as a therapist. So Andrew, where can people find you, you know, if they want to look at your website or if they're interested in working with you, or if they want to know more about 
sex therapy, where can people locate you? Yeah, um, a couple of places. So my website is andrewkatsinas.com. And that's K-A-T-S-I-N-A-S. Also on Zencare and Psychology Today as marketing tools. Zencare took a video of me and it's kind of awkward for me to watch, but uh, it talks a little bit more about the way that I practice up on that. So that's probably how I would direct. Um, I can also be reached by email at andrewkatsinasmft at gmail.com. Perfect. Thank you. And we will include Andrew's contact and website and all of that down in the show notes. We'll also create infographics of all the amazing, you know, advice and information that Andrew, you shared about what it means to be a therapist and be be in therapy. And I think some of the things that you mentioned would be really impactful for people to have a tangible hold of. So don't forget to subscribe to know when the rest of our episodes will be coming out. Andrew, from both Janet and I, we really want to thank you for being vulnerable and coming. And hey, this is a modern step too, right? Of getting on a podcast and talking with fellow therapists and talking about what you do and opening that window into what therapy is. So we really want to thank you for giving us the time to talk with us. I thank you for having me. This is really lovely. Thank you for joining us today on Couch Time. You can find show notes for this episode linked in the description along with all our references and resources mentioned today. If you enjoyed this episode, hit that subscribe button so you don't miss the next one. We will chat again soon. Bye.